Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Seriously Risky Business. I'm Adam Wallow, continuing to host the show while Pat Gray is in Washington, D.C. As we record this, I believe he's at the Counter-Ransomware Initiative's reception at the Australian Embassy, no doubt sipping some eucalyptus and cyber cocktail. My colleague, Tom Uran, and I, however, remain hard at work. How's it going, Tom? Good. Good, Adam. How are you? I'm doing well. Doing well. This week's show is brought to you by Nucleus Security. And we're going to talk about uh, the intersection of... I guess, computer hacking and thuggery. Uh, Tom has a section in this week's newsletter, uh, which he entitled, and I thought this really hit the vibe for me, when good cybersecurity leads to violence. Uh, Microsoft has put out a paper about a group they call Octotempest. Why don't you fill us in, Tom? Yeah, yeah. So this has kind of been bubbling on for a while. And I guess the story starts back with the Lapsus group, which was a group of mostly young people um, and they just were really good at social engineering. But it turns out that it's all wrapped around this group, um, which is an online group called The Com, which started off doing social engineering, and there have been a whole lot of members of that group that have splintered out into different cyber criminal activities. And they've got a whole lot of different names, you know, different companies call them different things but they're very, very aggressive at um, just trying new things and also uh, expanding into new, uh, I guess, their business ventures. So they started off doing social engineering for SIM swapping. That led to cryptocurrency theft, naturally enough. And then it's social engineering to get access Partly for the lulls, but then it started to be extorting companies because of the stolen data they had. And now that's led to actually deploying ransomware. And so that was what's happened with MGM and Caesars most recently. But one of the one of the pieces of information that's got picked up by the media is that Microsoft reports that they would actually threaten individuals with like just with violence they said you know we're going to send someone around to shoot up your house um, they threaten family members and they kind of build off the information that they would use for social engineering so they they do their homework they figure out who's an admin who they are um, where they live what the names are and they would use that first off to try and get access by engineering the help desk usually. And it appears that if that doesn't work, they just get frustrated. <laughs> They'll just resort to threats. And that's um, a while back after the Cyber Safety Review Board released its report into lapsus and related groups. Heather Atkins was interviewed by Patrick, and yes. she made the point that these groups are stepping beyond the kind of boundaries that infosec defenders think of and lapsus had done some of this and microsoft is just a lot more explicit about what's going on yeah like it's, it's interesting because so much of what like i've spent my entire career working in in infosec and i fundamentally consider myself a nerd right most of the problems that we solve and address or techniques that we use are ultimately nerd stuff like computer things maybe a little bit into social where it's required and that you know willingness to go a bit more full spectrum a bit more you know into just being a thug 
doesn't really come naturally to the sort of people who've been in computer security for you know for a long time most of us nerds are you know maybe not particularly physically suited for violence perhaps <laughs> uh, is a nice way of saying it and so it's a little outside of our comfort zone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you you haven't expected someone to turn up at your office or home and threaten to beat you up. Is that that's what you're saying, yeah, right? Exactly. And we're not kind of really used to this. And it ties into the fact I think that a lot of computer security has historically been kind of theater rather than practical, rather than pragmatic. You know, and when you look at some of the conversations around security theater in airports, say. You know, when mm-hmm. you go through airport security in the US, you get a very different experience than, say, in Tel Aviv. And right. that difference between actual real-world problems exist and we're just kind of doing this for theatre, I think, you know, the computer security industry is not really very used to real, like, real problems. Um, <laughs> so one of the things I mentioned is that, you know, Threatening someone with a baseball bat doesn't appear in the mitre attack tactics. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I chuckled very much at that because, you know, the rubber hose joke has existed for plenty of time. But, you know, we don't really, you know, in, if we're sitting there, you know, uh, making a risk register for your business, it's probably not a thing that you seriously put on there unless you are dealing with you know, we have an office in Moscow or, you know, we have some other like specific reason to be concerned about real world you know, meat space kind of stuff happening yeah. to us or our staff. Yeah, I think uh, unless you're in defense and intelligence, yes, you, yeah. you probably don't think about that. So one of the questions I wondered about were whether these threats actually work. So yes. Coveware, which is a ransomware incident response firm, I asked the CEO, Bill Siegel, about that and he said they had seen those kinds of threats but typically what happens is it actually strengthens the resolve of the defending organization. Like they, they don't give in. And these are kind of the last resort threats when they've not had success with social engineering. Now, having said that, he did say that those kinds of threats sometimes end up with those people being swatted. So that's where police are called um, under the pretense that there's some um, something bad happening at that house. And the, the swatting aspect is interesting because it's one of the few areas where doing violence can be done like remotely over the internet because and, and at scale, right? Because doing violence otherwise, you know, requires you to have either a physical presence or to go do it yourself or contract someone and, you know, try to hire a hitman on the internet, you know, without it being an undercover FBI agent, good luck. Um, but swatting is a thing that, as a social engineer, you can exert power over a distance with relatively safety to yourself by virtue of anonymous calling and voice over IP and so on and so forth. So it, it's one of the few examples of violence that does scale and has the necessary properties. And I, in places like the United States, where you know, the threat to someone being swatted is also pretty significant, mm. um, you know, it, it seems to work. I, I don't know how well swatting works in other markets, like whether it's a thing you could experiment like in australia can you imagine like i you know i feel like it might be a different story certainly here in new zealand if the you know new zealand police rolls on you it's unlikely to result in you know you just getting shot on your doorstep (laughs) yeah you know i'm reminded of like when brian krebs was 
in the middle of you know various feuds with underground drug markets and someone shipped a you know half a kilo of colombia's finest heroin to his doorstep and he just phoned the local police with whom he had a regular you know good relationship and said hey can you come past and pick up some drugs thanks (laughs) (laughs) assuming that there is a place in our threat models for real world violence or you know things that are outside of our regular infosec thinking what 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 do you, what do we do about that i mean how should corporates and also you know other you know government entities think about an extended gamut of risk <laughs> well uh, that's the big question to me so when it comes to swatting in particular it seemed to me that the best solution is to just have a good relationship with the police department. That actually, I think, becomes very hard when you've got a very large distributed organisation because it's the local police department that's going to come round and you've got one or maybe you've got several CISOs around the world. Um, I, I guess the broader point is that these groups, these kids, are just pushing every button and trying every possible answer to kind of find those seams that they can exploit and so my gut feeling is that there's going to be quite a long time where every couple of weeks there's a new way that things are exploited or broken that's always been there and people have just never thought about it so I think it's a good time to try and revisit and figure out what those seams are because there is a group that's actively exploiting it and in a way that you wouldn't have thought they would do five years ago or even a year ago. I mean, we've often talked about the, you know, the opposite, right? Instead of stick of having carrot or people showing up with money to bribe your employees uh, or your staff or whoever to grant access, you know, just pay for the passwords, pay for the multi-factor auth tokens. Um, and we you know we've seen some limited examples of that, but I'm kind of surprised given the amount of money that sloshes around in the ransomware world that we don't see that as a major source of initial entry. And is that because you know, initial access from a broker or, you know, through technical means yourself is so straightforward or, I mean, because I guess your your headline suggests that if we do cyber well, security well, then the threats will just move to things that actually work like violence or bribery. Yeah, my gut feeling is it's because of MFA that we're seeing the social engineering um, become so prominent. And I guess uh, just buying credentials doesn't work but maybe buying, <laughs> putting in the MFA token. Yeah, or you know, <laughs> buying a webcam pointed at your RSA token or whatever else, yes. <laughs> it, it's not very uh, deniable, though, if you're the person doing that. That's true, yes. It does come at some risk to your own employment. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a hard world being a, being a CISO these days. <laughs> well, speaking of a hard world being a CISO, um, one of the other pieces I wrote about, um, which... Patrick and Chris Krebs and Dimitri spoke about quite a bit on the main podcast was um, the SEC announcing charges against SolarWinds and its CISO. And so without rehashing their discussion, which I thought was very good, um, I just wanted to ask you, do you think that the kind of security posture that SolarWinds had was like almost normal for companies in your experience as a pen tester? 
it certainly did. I mean, the sorts of things that we had seen reported about SolarWinds internal network and the security posture and, you know, the use of you know, default creds or obvious creds or, you know, not widespread multi-factor auth and robust logging and everything. Like, that felt pretty normal to me. And, and so the, the companies that hire you to do testing... They're probably the ones who care about security a bit more. Is that <laughs> fair to say, or is it just sort of cybersecurity theatre that they go through because they I mean, have there's to? A, there's a degree of it, but generally, yeah, the industries that gravitated towards pen testing early tended to be those that had more mature security postures. So banking and finance right. and insurance, and you know, people where risk management was, I think, telcos, uh, you know, a thing where they've had to think about it for a while. But the idea that SolarWinds was out of the ordinary doesn't seem credible to me. And, you know, SEC isn't saying that SolarWinds is out of the ordinary. They're saying it should be that you don't mislead your investors and saying your security is tickety-boo <laughs> when you have, in fact, industry standard, which is to say trash security. You know, yeah. is, is that a false statement? Is it material to, you know, how investors think about before they invest? And some of yeah. that's a... I mean, one of the uh, SEC arguments was that the solar winds used what they described as a, a, a boilerplate cybersecurity disclosure. So it said, you know, cybersecurity is hard, terrible things could happen, um, our business relies on technology. And that struck me as a totally normal disclosure. Exactly. So probably you could take any organize, any large organization and find instances where you would you would call the security mistake laughable. And I guess, basically yes, right? And, and, and at the same at time and at the same time every organization has these kind of boilerplate cybersecurity disclosures you know we're kind of operating under this fiction that the disclosures match the reality and and they just don't and i guess the whole point of this was to try and get them closer but i don't know that it makes any difference no i mean if you were choosing who to invest in based on truthful statements like accurate real world statements about their cybersecurity posture then like, what's, what does that look like? I mean, can you imagine a statement that was truthful? And indeed, like, when you're making an investment, I mean, and maybe, maybe I'm being cynical here, but it feels like most corporate releases, most, you know, statements about the, the status of a company or its projects or whatever are all kind of weaselly window dressing happy <laughs> thoughts. And having, you know, part of being a good investor is reading between those lines and understanding, you know, the accepting the reality and the truthfulness, you know, it's inspired by actual events. It's not the actual truth. And that's kind of part of the process. Now, you know, when I you know, studied economics at school, the idea was the free market had good information and you made rational choices. But, you know, we're a little beyond that in, in the modern state of, um, of the free market. And like, on the one hand, I admire the SEC's optimism, I suppose, you know, that, 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 making truthful statements about cyber is a thing that they could expect. But I do wonder how much of this is, is naivety in a way as well. Yeah, I, I'm not, I, I sort of feel the same way you do. To me, it seems that having companies being transparent about it is, is a good long-term outcome. Yeah, that's the job of but the regulator to make them transparent in that respect. Good. Yeah, but, but but I don't know if this will achieve. And I'm not sure that it makes 
any difference in the sense that unless you're a company particularly focused on security, so I guess somewhere like LastPass, for example, where they've had a number of issues, um, having transparency on that would probably affect whether you would invest in them or use them. Yeah, or you're but making for a company like, like Solar Winds, it's kind of orthogonal to what they do. Yeah. You know, is their product a unique product that will add value to companies? That probably makes it worth buy- buying, regardless of their uh, security. Assuming it's just as good or just as bad as anyone else. Yeah, I think that that really hits it on the head. Like if you're like the way that Apple has been using privacy as a marketing tool, like saying their products are good for privacy, like making a particular point of it, then it's important that you are doing what you're saying there. But for someone like SolarWinds where, you know, they've just got padlocks and shields on their website like every other vendor and that's just kind of the normal process, but as you say, it's not really the core of what they're doing. Like I've seen plenty of SolarWinds products in the past before SolarWinds was, you know, a household name from this and they were just every other enterprise java web app with trash versions of java and trash bugs in it like that's you know normal the quality of that software seemed like normal enterprise software to me which is to say garbage but that's what you expect from it so yeah i think you know the in the like solowins didn't seem unique and i struggle to see how the sec weighing in in this case really is equitable and fair like i want it to be fair because the market should work better than it does but you know i feel badly for their CISO. i think and i think the one of the things that pat and uh, chris krebs were talking about is kind of what it means for being a CISO in a market where you have to worry about being prosecuted if you're making statements that aren't like actually true as opposed to just you know investor statement <laughs> true uh, that's probably about it uh, for today, Tom. So thank you very much uh, for your time. Thanks a lot, Adam. Thanks, Tom. This week's show was brought to you by Nuclear Securities. Thanks very much to them for that. <laughs>